0: Everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today joining me on the skype my phone is Joel Schwartzberg. Joel has been teaching people about communication and presentations for years. He has written a book on the subject called Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message, and Make Your Words Matter. Uh, and he is a former national champion public speaker, having won the United States Championship in after-dinner speaking and the Massachusetts State Championship in persuasive speaking. Joel, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure.
0: Joel, uh, for most people, I think speaking is the thing uh, they do when they want to communicate about something else. But for you, speaking is often the focus. It's often the thing itself. When did you hone in on public speaking as like its own craft to be practiced?
1: Well, I first got engaged in competitive public speaking at a very young age when I was in sixth grade right outside of Houston, Texas. I joined my speech club. And I stuck with that all the way through my senior year of college, and that's when I won the national championship. And you would hope that after all that time, I would learn a few things. And I did. And I used them to my advantage. I was also a coach for speech and debate teams at the University of Pennsylvania, Seton Hall University, and other colleges. But it wasn't until I was interviewing for jobs, or I was presenting at a conference, or I was making a case to a boss or later to a direct reports, that I realized that I was using a lot of the skills I learned in competition to my advantage in my ability to make points and to be engaging and to be clear. So I began a sort of public speaking journey that included teaching public speaking, but the big breakthrough happened about three years after I started teaching public speaking. because I was teaching all the stuff you could really find on Google, how to stand, how to gesture, what to think about. And I realized that when I was training my students on speech making, I would ask them, what's your point? And they wouldn't know what a point is. They wouldn't know if they had a point or not. Or sometimes they would confuse their point for a title or a theme or an idea or a a topic. And those aren't points. And that's when I sort of charted my own path. And that's really what the book Get to the Point is about. It's about reinforcing this idea that if you don't have a point, it doesn't matter what you do as a public speaker after that, you are rendered pointless, and, and nobody wants to be that.
0: So just to go back for a second, I want to hear more about the point and the book, but competitive public speaking, that's different <laughs> from debate club, right? Like my high school had a debate club, but I don't know that we had a speech club. Is it Are they similar or different?
1: They are sort of sibling activities. In fact, I did a little bit of debate, and I did a little bit of speech, and, you know, a, a further sibling, let's say an extended sibling, would be the drama club. But in speech competition, you would enter in events in competition, such as informative speaking or persuasive speaking, exuberaneous speaking, impromptu speaking. Now, the real geeks out there will know this as forensics, and using that word, that's how I demonstrate I know what I'm talking about. So there's an entire forensic league, Unfortunately, the the initial is NFL, so it got a little confusing. And forensics itself is often confused for another use of the word, which is when you're cutting up dead bodies so we have these associations that don't really help but it goes all the way through elementary school middle school and as i said college and you have a national championship in public speaking and all these events as you do in sports or ping pong or you know chess or any other activity
0: so in competitive public speaking Is it about the subject matter? Is it the person with the most interesting speech? Or is it you can be talking about paint drying, but if you are engaging enough and do all like hit these other sort of technical points, you can still win.
1: It's really a combination of both. And the event that I did best in, for example, is called After Dinner Speaking. And that's an event in which you take a semi-serious topic and you make it funny. But it cannot be a stand-up routine. You have to be using the humor as a vehicle through which you are making a serious point and trying to convince people of something.
0: Would John Oliver or uh, someone like Samantha B would someone like that, is that comparable? Obviously, those are like written by teams of people, but is that they're being funny, but in the service of sort of making a point, is that similar?
1: Yeah, very much uh, The Daily Show and those things we enjoy today. That was sort of the idea, using humor as a conduit. And Amy Schumer does this also sometimes as a conduit through which you're making points that have real gravity and real impact on people's lives.
0: Are there any stand-up comedians who you think, just putting aside their material, whether you think their material is funny or not, are great public speakers?
1: I think... The comedians I look up to the most are the ones who make strong points. And a very good example is Chris Rock. You know, he's just not throwing out jokes left and right. He's really trying to engage the audience in some of the issues he's talking about. And he will often repeat lines over and over and over again. Like he talks about the difference between being rich and having wealth And he says that part, I'm not talking about being rich, I'm talking about having wealth. He says that part over and over, and that's not the punchline, but that is the point he's trying to impact people with through the use of humor. So I really admire those people like Chris Rock and the people that you mentioned, whether it's Stephen Colbert or any of those talk show hosts or Amy Schumer, who are using humor as a mechanism, as a a vehicle through which they're trying to actually impact people.
0: I mean, did you have, like, a favorite subject matter that you would talk about? Did you have, like, an area of expertise um, that you would keep going to for your speeches, or was it just something new every time?
1: Every year, you would come up with a topic, and you could change it mid-year, but by and large, people stuck with their speech. It's it's about a 10-minute speech. You memorize it. And you improve it along the way, and mostly for after-dinner speaking, that means kicking out the bad jokes and learning new jokes or modern jokes or ripping off headlines. But you stick with it through the year. You take a competition to competition. It's not unlike the National Football League. You you qualify for the national finals. You have a a preliminary round. You have a semifinal round. Then you have a final round. You win the final round. Suddenly, boom, you're the national champion.
0: Besides... Just the content of your speech, what are some of the technical things the judges are looking for you to do that you wanna make sure you do?
1: Well, one of the things they're looking for that's not spelled out is confidence and energy. Those are the things that really separate a strong speaker, and that's what we care about nowadays because you're not no one gets a trophy for public speaking these days or you can, but it's not worth it's it can't be compared to the value of getting a promotion or getting the job you want or wowing an audience for example. So uh, confidence and energy, that's what separated. The, the people who really were able to excel and elevate, from people who kind of reached a plateau where they had great content and were very funny, but were just not engaging the audience because they just weren't powerful enough. Then naturally, and after dinner speaking, the people who were naturally funny did better than the people who tried to be funny who weren't. And that's something I tell all my students and clients, if you're not funny, by all means, do not try to be funny because it's not, you know, the idea is not to be inauthentic. In true public speaking, you're not performing, you're not an actor, you're being your true self, you're just being the strongest version of that self.
0: You know, be confident is, I feel like, advice for speech, it's classic advice you would give someone who is nervous about giving a speech, it's like one of the things you know you have to do, but it's also one of those things that's of course easier said than done. How do you practice being confident and having energy? How do you like, uh, how, do you, how did you develop
1: that? it's an excellent question and it's something i cover because i do not want to give unactionable advice it's like you said useless to sell someone to sound more confident or to sound like a leader or uh, even jeff to say stop saying um and ah so much you need to give people something that they can do to either replace a bad habit or to sound more confident so one of the things that makes people sound more confident and more powerful is volume Now, sometimes we think, oh, well, I'll increase my volume, all that does is help people hear me more. It's about audibility. But when you increase your volume, when anyone increases their volume, a magical thing happens. You sound more credible, you sound more confident, you sound more competent, you sound more authoritative, and you sound more like a leader. So what I really encourage my students to do, whether it's an intern or a CEO, is increase your volume, and automatically, you will have all those benefits. We all know how to be louder. And so it's really a very useful tool to get to the place you want to be in terms of your reputation and credibility.
0: When you won, like what was what was your mm-hmm. what was your championship speech about?
1: My final speech as a senior, the one with which I won the national championship, was about stereotypes and about what I call two-dimensionality, reducing people to flat pieces of cardboard and saying, well, this person is this way because of their background or because of their ethnicity or because they were raised in this kind of environment or because they're this tall or that short. So I was giving a lot of examples of people who were stereotyped in stereotyping behavior, as well as a lot of people who persevered and overcame those stereotypes. And I began the speech by... uh, Putting one of those cardboard goldfish bowls in front of my audience and I pretended to enjoy it and to be relaxed by it and the ridiculousness of being relaxed by a cardboard goldfish versus an actual goldfish was really an illustration of how we buy into cardboard and two-dimensional and stereotypical themes when actually there's a much larger truth going on that we need to pay attention to.
0: So that's kind of fun because you had like a a prop, right? Like there's almost like an interactive element. Was that intentional? Uh,
1: Yes. You know, like any comedy routine or any way of engaging an audience, whether it's a goldfish bowl and cardboard or whether it's a great PowerPoint, any way you can use multiple media to engage an audience is to your advantage. As long as you're using it wisely. There are people who hate uh, PowerPoint, but not because of PowerPoint, this application, this program, but because of the way people use it. That's not really serving them and can be very annoying.
0: What would you tell people who are doing terrible PowerPoints, where there's mm-hmm. large text, large slides of text, and they're just reading the text? Is that the mistake people, or everyone's making with PowerPoint?
1: There are a number of mistakes. That's one of them. You know, how many times have you seen a PowerPoint where someone says, well, uh, you probably can't read this, but here's what it says. (laughs) It's like, well, think about why you made that PowerPoint and what caused you to say that sentence. So we do really don't want people to read on PowerPoint. Reading is a very distracting thing. You can only do one thing at a time when you're reading. What you want to use PowerPoint for is a reference point. Your points should look like notes. So there should be no complete sentences. There should be bullets. Uh, There can be shiny objects, you know, graphics or icons, but keep them small. Remember, the PowerPoint is there to support you. You are not there to support the PowerPoint. Sometimes I see PowerPoints that are colorful and brilliant and animated and they're there purely to entertain and there's no point in that. The PowerPoint is a tool to help you do the only job you have as a public speaker and that's to move your point from point A to point B, nothing else matters. And if every page of your PowerPoint is not helping you do that, then it's really doing you the ultimate disservice.
0: PowerPoint is interesting because here's kind of like a new discipline of forensics, right? Like Mm -hmm. when were you doing um, your speech championships? When were you in college?
1: I was in college, I graduated in 90. So I was uh, competing in college anyway, from 1986 to 1990. So there was no PowerPoint. There were no cell phones, right. no like, iPods. Slides no
0: existed. There were slides, but they were so right. we and cumbersome that like, fun- you, do, you, you know, you had to really make them count. Whereas now they're so easy to make that I think people um, will do them for anything. And it's kind of expected to do them. But at the same time, it has sort of developed this new type of speech, the PowerPoint speech, Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, back in the day, there's an event called extemporaneous speaking where you're given a, a, usually a political topic or a topic in the news and you have to give a seven-minute speech about it. Now, there was no internet back then. So we literally were cutting magazine articles, newspaper articles, bringing all this paper, all these files with us to this room that could cover almost any topic and then hoping that there'd be information there. Nowadays, you just bring in a laptop.
0: Are there other ways which you've seen the internet change public speaking?
1: I think the PowerPoint is probably the biggest sort of revolution in public speaking and something it's not given credit for. I'm a visual learner and I'm a terrible auditory learner. So if you basically, if you tell something, something to me, I'm not gonna really process it well, unless I'm really concentrating. But if you show me something, I'm going to process it much more easily. So in that way, if a speaker is talking to me and then reinforcing his points on PowerPoint so I could see them visually and process them as a visual learner, that's a very big deal. And we don't often talk about that when we talk about the value of PowerPoint, how it can actually be a huge tool for people who are visual learners. Now I would think that's the number one. You have all these gadgets like the little uh, pointers and the red lights. and. Uh, The clickers, you know, that you can use that have 16 buttons on them when all you use are two buttons, Uh, all sorts of uh, bells and whistles. But the thing I always say over and over again, the most fundamental element is the one that's been there all the time, and that is the point. And you have to know what your point is, and you have to know how to sharpen it and champion it. If you can't do that, it doesn't matter what technology you have. How funny you are, how attractive or charming or charismatic you are, nothing else matters if you really don't have that foundation.
0: I got to say, you really practice what you preach about this having a point thing. And it's kind of fun because your point is having a point. Right. I think everyone thinks they have a point. How do I? What, what's a good way to pressure test whether I have a point or whether I just have a title?
1: Well, Jeff, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was provide a really simple test, even easier than a Cosmo quiz, that will tell you if you have a point or not. So I developed this thing called the I Believe That Test, and it's pass-fail, and it'll basically tell you right off the bat if you're on your way to making a point, point. and it goes like this. Take and conceive what you think is a point you might be making in your professional or personal life, anything, something you'd want to convince someone else of or an idea you want to convey. Now think of it in the form of a, of a one sentence, at least one sentence. Now put the words I believe that in front of that sentence. Here's the quiz. Here's the challenge. If what you have next, now that you've put I believe that in front of it, is a complete sentence, not a run on and certainly not a fragment, if it would impress your fourth grade language arts teacher as a complete sentence, then you are on your way to making a point. If it does not, you have to reimagine that phrase until it makes sense. So let's put this into practice. You can't say, I believe that podcasting. You cannot say that I believe that the power of podcasting. You can't say, I believe that great podcasting. None of those are sentences. You're not making a point. If I said to you, what are you gonna speak about? And Jeff, you say, I'm gonna talk about podcasting. You're not telling me, what do you believe about podcasting? What's the impact of podcasting? What's your take on podcasting? You know, There's so much information there that's critical to your point that you're not communicating, but you can say, I believe that podcasting is the best way to reach people who have a hunger for information. Or I believe that social media is the best way to reach out to and make a difference to millennials. Those are complete sentences with the words I believe that in front of it. And those are the beginnings of a point. And by a point, I mean a proposition, an argument, some piece of value that you want to give to your audience.
0: Right, right, right. And your book is all about points, or at least the title is. So I'm assuming the book is, because then it's on point?
1: Right. In fact, you know, I pitched it to my publisher as a general public speaking manual, and this point stuff would be a big part of it. And they read it, and they said, you know, this stuff about standing and breathing and eye contact, first of all, you could find that anywhere and you can find a million books on that. But this stuff about a point is so important, they wanted me to take out all the generic public speaking advice and really focus in on that. They even gave me a word limit, 15,000 words, because if I can't make my point in 15,000 words, I'm like the dentist of bad teeth or the hairdresser with bedhead all day. I need to prove that I can make my point in something this tight and concise.
0: What are the differences between writing a speech and writing a book?
1: Hmm. Well, one is meant to be heard and one is meant to be read.
0: So how does that affect what you do?
1: Right. uh, In the process of creating it? Yeah. So when I write a speech, and I rarely do, and by the way, I recommend people don't. You should never be writing out a full speech word by word. What you should be writing out are reference notes that you can use to then deliver and, and convey a point. But when you're writing to be heard you wanna keep it as tight as possible. Because here's something important uh, that's a big difference between the two. When you read something, you can take the time. You could stop, you can reread, you could think about it, pause, put a bookmark in it. In a speech, you can do none of that. So here's what it boils down to, and here's what I always say. Your audience needs twice as long to digest what you've said as you need to say it. Speakers often think it's one-to-one. So that means when you're writing a speech, you need to keep it as short as possible, as tight as possible, and one of the ways to do that and one of the things I do is to look for a very innocent word. And that word is and, A-N-D, and. I know when I see and in a speech, I'm headed down a road where I'm probably gonna complicate the message to my audience. Cause I'm trying to load up uh, a point with so many different things. It is not a Christmas tree where the more ornaments and glowy, th- you know, shiny things you add to it, the better it gets. You actually wanna make it shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter we know that less is more we know that in writing what we need to learn is that more is less when we add more to it we think we're adding value but we're actually forcing the audience to to receive many points of information and those points are 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 fighting with each other for your attention and because many points are fighting with each other they're diluting the impact with each other and let me make this clear through an example if i gave a speech where i said this approach will make us more effective efficient powerful, super, and memorable. First of all, how many of those descriptors is the audience going to remember? Second, which one of those is most important to me? No one would know because I didn't give any indication of it. In fact, it may be hard to remember any of those because all of those adjectives are competing with each other, as opposed to my saying, this approach will make us more effective. Boom. One idea, gets into the audience, they have the time to process it because it's simple. So that's, I think, the biggest difference between, let's say, writing a book and writing a speech. The speech has to keep it simple, knowing that an audience only has a very, very short attention span and a very short amount of time to process what you're saying.
0: Right, right, right. Can you give me an idea, like, what, how, when you write notes, Um, for yourself. You're not writing out your entire speech. It's like one log word document. You're doing bullet points, if I'm understanding this correctly. Well, first of all, do you write them or type them?
1: (laughs) It depends if I'm writing for someone else and I do that in my day job. uh, I'll often type them and print them out. But the key thing is that they're readable. So I use a large font. I put a lot of space between the bullets. You know, Notes are meant to be a sort of lifesaver. You can glance at them quickly, and they remind you of the things you're going to say. And what's what I found very helpful is I say the the notes are like a band set list. You know, bands about to perform. So there's a little sheet of paper taped to the amplifier that has the list of songs and the order you're supposed to sing them in. And maybe it has some notes like you say hello Cleveland and not hello Pittsburgh, or <laughs> whatever you're going to say. All the things you need to remember to have a successful uh, communication you want to put into those notes. And a 10 minute speech, you could, you should be able to handle that with one note card, because eventually, the more you practice it, you can make those notes shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And remember, the notes are only to help you keep you on track with your points and to remind you of things you might otherwise forget. So there should be no complete sentences, no paragraphs. You should never be reading from those notes. You shouldn't even be allowed to. And Jeff, I'll tell you, when I do workshops with people, I have them write notes, and then I look at their notes. And if their notes make sense to me, I have them rewrite the notes. Right. The idea is that the notes should make no sense to me. I should not be able to give your speech with their notes. They should only mean something to you, like the things you would write on your hand the night before a test.
0: So... That tells me a lot about your college career, but the, um, the, the, your, non, your non-forensics your non college career. But what about, yeah. okay, so you've got your notes, and now you sort of need to get it into your head. Do you rehearse it over and over again? Do you just, like, sleep with it under your pillow? How do you get, like, how do you make sure that, the, that everything you didn't include in the notes is actually in your head and that you will be able to... Uh, to you know speak without leaning on the notes and that and that you've got it all H- how, how do you rehearse if you rehearse right
1: well, everyone says, you know, practice, of course. Why are those TED speakers so amazing? Or why are the people who get pitches on Shark Tank so amazing? I thought, I have a friend who is actually a guest shark and I thought they were reading from teleprompters and he said, no, it's about repetition. But Jeff, here's the thing that people don't recognize. They practice to memorize because maybe they did that in school and that's not really effective practice. In other words, they will take their notes and they'll do this. All right, Jamie, thank you. That's practicing to memorize. Practice is when you practice using your mind and your mouth together to produce and convey a point. And because it's about practicing having your mind and your mouth work in concert, it is only effective when you say it out loud. So the only effective practice is where you go into a room or you go into a bathroom or a closet or you're on your way to the train and you're saying it out loud. You're using your notes, but you're not sort of mumbling it as if you're trying to memorize it. That works best for me. Now, there's a lot of bad advice out there like, oh, you have to use a camera or you have to use a mirror. I actually encourage people not to use mirrors. I think mirrors train you the wrong way. Nobody looks at a um, in a mirror or looks even at a video themselves and thinks, hmm, I wonder if this is telling me if I made my point effectively. Nobody asks that because you're too busy doing what you were trained to do in front of a mirror or a camera. Are my teeth white? Did I wear the right shirt? Do I look terrible? Do I look not so confident? When really the ball game is, am I delivering my point? And that's something you won't think about when you're looking at an image of yourself. That image has no clue.
0: Do you have a place that you like to rehearse? Like, do you do that just in your room by yourself? Do you like to do it walking?
1: Anywhere, you know, I, I take a train from New Jersey to New York City every day. And Where back. are you in New Jersey? <laughs> I'm in Chatham, New Jersey, nice. right by the uh, Short Hills Mall. Love it. You, you I, should that's go a, by malls.
0: For those not from New Jersey, this is how felt people from New Jersey communicate with each other. Uh, this is how you geolocate: is which mall are you near? I grew up. Right. By, I grew up by the Menlo Park Mall.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I lived in Ford's, not too far from there. Actually. See,
0: so that this is how we communicate in New Jersey. Sorry, keep yeah. going.
1: In Long Island, by the way, it's which exit on the LIE you're on here. In New Jersey, it's by malls or diners. I think diners Diners is good, too. Yeah. So you so, like to practice on the train. <laughs> yeah. I like. Well, I like to do my writing on the train. I can't practice out loud because I'm usually in a quiet car and, you know, people think there's something wrong with you if you're talking that loud. But I have a seven minute walk from my house to the train station, and that's really where I do it. I say it out loud. I look at my notes. But by and large, I'll do it in a hotel room. I'll do it in my office. I'll do it in a closet, I'll do it in the bathroom. All the time I do it in the bathroom, I just kind of shut the door and I just go through it with my notes because it's not about, you don't have to practice in the setting where you're going to speak. You don't have to sort of mimic the context or the room or the environment. Like I said, it's all about training your mouth and your mind to do this together, to to be cohorts or uh, work in cahoots, uh, to do this thing, which is to push out this point.
0: What about, this is classic speech-giving advice. It's like, I I don't know if anyone actually gives this advice or it's just something they say Mm -hmm. on TV, picture everyone in their underwear. Is that a real thing? I don't even really understand how that's supposed to work or what the the theory behind this is.
1: I don't know either, to tell you the truth. That's sort of uh, a mother's tale or an urban legend. I would think that would be very distracting uh, depending on who's in your audience. Well, in either case, good or bad, I think that would be very distracting. Plus it takes a lot of mental power to do that and you wanna be very focused on the point you're trying to make and to get those words together. So I I really don't uh, recommend that approach. I do recommend something that I can not take credit for that I've heard a lot, which is, Turn your nervous energy into excitement, and literally tell yourself. Try to uh, whack yourself out, or, or you know, put a number on yourself to think, "I am not nervous. I am excited." Like literally say that to yourself if you're nervous when you're about to begin. These aren't nerves. These are this is excitement. What what happens is those two things are so close together, your anxiety and your excitement, that you can literally move from one to the other and psych yourself out. And when you tell yourself that you're nervous, you're headed down a path where you might ultimately fail because you're just going to psych yourself out. But if you tell yourself you're excited, that's moving in the right direction. You want to be excited. You want to be productive. You want to be passionate about what you're saying. So that's something I found that I think has been very useful. You know, people who are afraid of public speaking, there's a word for it. I don't know if it's a real word, but it's called glossophobia. And the ways to overcome glossophobia, for me anyway, is to know your point, because if you don't know your point, you should be nervous. Definitely to practice, to talk about being excited and not being nervous, and to rely on your notes to really know that they're there in case you have a problem. If you have good notes, there should be no problem because you can always look down. There's no foul, no discredits or points taken off for you looking down at your notes to remind yourself what you want to say. The key is not to then talk into your notes. Once you look down, remind yourself what you wanna say next, then you look up, because you always wanna be communicating directly to your audience, looking into their eyes.
0: When you're working with clients, do you find that the people that come to you are often glossophobic and are like, I hate public speaking and I have to give a best man speech? Or are they people that are maybe, I don't know, business managers and they they just wanna up their game a little bit?
1: I have all types, frankly. I have students who want to give a toast or want to improve their interviewing skills. And then I have CEOs who actually are very confident already, but for some reason, they find themselves rambling. I mean, we've all seen leaders, and they've gotten to be leaders for one reason or another, probably a good reason, and yet they ramble. And they ramble because they don't have a point. And this is the beauty of, of my focus and really makes it easy on me. This idea of having a point—I say the same thing to the student as I say to the CEO. We work on the same exercises to focus on your point, to make sure that you're not adding things to it, to make sure you're not using bad adjectives, and bad adjectives are general adjectives like very good, interesting, awesome, uh, amazing, that are so broad they don't mean anything. So I counsel people away from that, and with these tools and 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 tricks you can actually improve whether you're at the low end of the spectrum and need more confidence or whether you're at the high end of the spectrum and just need to make sure you're focused and have impact.
0: Right, right, right. And does public speaking, you're talking about people that come because they want to be better at interviews, does practicing public speaking also make you better at small talk? Because I actually think I'm decent at public speaking, but I'm terrible at small talk.
1: What do you think you do at small talk? What do you think is the mistake you make or the flaw you have with small talk?
0: I guess I don't know what to talk about. Right. That must Mm -hmm. be the most common thing people say about small talk. Um, And I'll often find myself listeners will be amused to know going into what I describe as interview mode. And people have called me Mm -hmm. out on this where I'll just like start interviewing someone like they're on my podcast because that's I know how to do that. But like I don't know how to start a conversation about something else.
1: Yeah, I think they're going to be diagnose that for podcasters, podcastism <laughs> or something like that. You just interrogate. And no one likes to be interrogated. I know people like that. I have found personally, and I've, I've heard this from my clients and my students as well, that when you embrace this idea of knowing what your point is, That will help you even in a spontaneous, impromptu situation. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Toastmasters. Toastmasters is an international organization for public speakers. It'll help you become more confident as a public speaker. And they do something called table topics, where you literally literally get a topic and you have to speak on it in seconds. That's not a great training tool, by the way. But someone who knows a point looks at the topic and says, all right, what's the point I wanna make from this topic? The person who doesn't understand the point thinks, all right, How can I create a certain number of words that will cover this topic? Or how can I just keep talking until I find, until I come up with something interesting? So it helps somewhat with small talk because even when you're small talking, somewhere in your brain you could be thinking, I need to have some intention with this. Or this person is making this point and I have a thought on that. I'm going to make a counterpoint about that. Now obviously when it's a more professional setting like the Monday morning meeting, say you had an idea in the shower, you wanna present it, having it in the form of a point will give you more impact. And certainly if you're interviewing for a job, I would love to see more uh, people who are interviewing for jobs and looking for careers because that setting, the interview setting is the perfect scenario for where having a point will elevate you and get you that job, not having a point will sink you.
0: What is like a point? I might want to make in a job interview. Like I am uh, a really hard worker. Maybe that's why.
1: So let's use the, I believe that test to make sure we're kosher. So I believe that I will benefit your company or I will help you sell more Coca-Cola or I will help you save the world because I have these skills or I believe that my particular ability to do X will help your organization succeed in meeting its goals. At the end of the day, that's what you want those people to believe. Now, we all know an interview is also a personality test, but they're going to get a sense of your personality. It's too too late to cram for that one. You're stuck with your personality. you're stuck with that, right, exactly. But it's important to know that because some people think they need to regurgitate their resume. The worst thing you could do is just repeat a piece of paper that they already have in front of them. So how do you complement that resume? You tell stories, but you don't just tell stories, you make points. Every time you're asked a question, even if it's what's your greatest flaw, well, I used to have this flaw of doing this, but I believe that I was able to overcome that and be stronger because I was able to do this. Try to fashion all of your answers into I believe that statements. You know, when someone's on a panel at a conference, often they make, or they're on a talk show, often they make the mistake that they think they're there to answer questions. And I'm sorry to say that's just not the truth. The audience may want to believe that, but really when you're on The Tonight Show and you have a movie to push, you wasted your time, at least your publisher's time, if you don't say when the movie's coming out. Similarly, when you're on a talk show, or you're on a panel, you have things you were invited to say, points you need to make. You need to make them and not just answer questions. If you spend your whole time answering someone's questions, but don't make your point, you've really wasted your time. Because you were not there to make someone else's point, you were there to make your own point
0: we're talking about like sort of these common mistakes i'm sure everyone can relate to but even you as a toastmaster there must be Mm -hmm. some area where you still uh worry that you're going to make mistakes times you are nervous like what is it for you that like you are there common mistakes that you still find yourself making
1: yes well we're all on journeys nobody is perfect and nobody's not really nervous either we just need to know that the, the, the frenzy that we feel, the nervousness that we feel is not in our, those butterflies are not in our stomach, they're in our head, which means we can control them. Now, I'll answer your question. I'm a fast talker. I talk too quickly. And if I was training myself, the last thing or I know that the least effective thing to tell myself is, well, don't talk as fast. You know, sorry, I spent too much time in New York. I just, I talk really, really quickly. So the tools I use to talk more slowly are two specific things one is I raise my volume because I know if I'm pushing out that much breath to speak that loudly it'll be very difficult for me to talk quickly and loudly at the same time so talking with a greater volume will force me to talk less quickly the other thing I do is to embrace pauses so I try to deliberately pause and pausing slows me down and allows me to control what I'm doing. And I want to talk about that for just a second, Jeff, the idea of pausing. Pausing is a public speaker's best friend. It has lots of good stuff. It creates suspense and it shows that you're thinking. But for me, what pausing really does is it slows you down and it puts your mind ahead of your mouth. And let me explain that. Often when we talk, especially if you're like me, a fast talker, your mouth is traveling well ahead of your mind. And your mind's like, wait, 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 I gotta catch up to make sense of all these words that are coming out of your mouth. What you need to do is flip that, so that your mind is traveling ahead, clearing the path, and telling your mouth exactly what to say. So even as I'm talking to you, I'm trying to pause, I'm trying to slow down, because I know now that my mind can work in such a way to allow me to make my points with precision.
0: When you think, think I'm pausing now to think of
1: a question. (laughs) Right, and silence is fine. Often we're afraid to have have silence uh, because we think it means that we don't know what we want to say or we lost our train of thought. But nobody remembers silence. Very few people come away from a public speech or a presentation and say, you know, that was great, but there were too many pauses. That's because nothing happens. It's sort of like your sophomore year of high school. You don't remember it because nothing really important happened during that time, and pausing is the, is the same way. So don't fear pauses, you just need to embrace them.
0: When we talk about volume and modulating your volume, is your recommendation to be as loud as you can without yelling, is there like a proper volume level that you tell people to seek?
1: I tell people to speak too loud uncomfortably loud even into a microphone um to a microphone i would just say loud usually it's about the strength that's coming from your chest not so much you're not screaming or yelling you don't want to scream and yell into a microphone but you can use a strong voice in front of a microphone and i know this just last week i was doing stand-up it's on my bucket list so i was doing some stand-up comedy and i wasn't talking in a normal volume at all, even though a lot of the other comedians can. I was talking in a loud tone. I wasn't screaming or yelling. I wasn't Sam Kinison. But I think that volume had a certain energy that allowed me to engage and keep my audience captivated. So I usually tell all people to try to be too loud because for one thing, that helps the people who are generally too soft. And that's most people, by the way. I do an exercise where I go around the room and I say, give me your name, your title, and say one through five, uncomfortably loud, too loud. So they try, and then I ask the rest of the audience, raise your hand if you thought that was too loud. If you would say later, boy, you know, Jack was a little loud. Nobody raises their hand. And I say, well, what adjectives would you connect or ascribe to that new volume? And you know what they would say? They would say leadership, assertiveness, confidence, all those good things that happen from volume. Now there are some speak- people who speak too loud and have a it's easy for them to speak way too loud, annoyingly loud. And you know what? I also tell them to aim for too loud because I know and you probably know, Jeff, your social controls will never allow you to do something truly embarrassing, no matter what some public speaking teacher tells you. So I want them to always be speaking in their normal loud voice. And I want people who are speaking too softly to speak louder and even to their own ears, uh, uncomfortably loud, what they would consider uh, very, very weird and awkwardly loud
0: how was your experience doing stand-up? What was that like? Like um, <laughs> so obviously you've given public speak. You've, you're very comfortable speaking publicly, but were, were you more nervous than you usually are giving a speech? I
1: imagine you would be, right? I would be, I mean, doing stand up comedy is a little, it's like the jumping out of an airplane of public speaking. And the biggest hurdle for me is the jokes I tell are, are pretty precise so I can't mess up the wording and I can't mess up the timing. That means I have to memorize it. I can't talk my way around it. I can't use synonyms. I can't sort of stop and sort of work my way through it. Uh, Because of that needing to memorize, that's what made me nervous. I was thinking right before they called me, I was thinking, I'm not nervous about getting up there. I'm not nervous about uh, presenting in front of people. I am nervous about screwing up these jokes because I didn't memorize them well enough and I might mess them up and that'll be the difference between crickets and a laugh. So, but like I said, that's that's the bucket list for me. I'm never going to jump out of an airplane. I'm never even going to golf. But I do want to try these sort of adventures because there's no high, like having an audience really, really appreciate you, whether they're nodding, and that's a brilliant thing for a public speaker, or they're laughing, which is the comedy version of them nodding.
0: What was your experience? Like how would... How would you describe someone who knows public speaking so well? Hmm. Was doing stand-up different? Like, did you feel a different energy?
1: I pretty much brought over all the things I knew from public speaking. Energy, volume, pausing when I could, articulation which is something we haven't talked about which is really really important often we're mumbling because we're not aware that remember like i said the audience needs a lot of time to process what you're saying you help them with volume and pausing but you also help them by slightly over articulating not under articulating they, they have, ch- have a hard time uh, finding a mumbler funny even there are some funny mumblers. So mostly what I was doing was doing all the things I trained people to do and I was trained to do, being strong, energetic. It was just balancing that with this whole script in my head. <laughs> and I'll give myself an A minus. I think I got uh, most of it out there. At the end, a red light goes on telling you you're done. That threw me a little bit because I had a little bit to go. So. In that moment, I had to bring it to a close on the spot in a very impromptu way, knowing that if I ruined the wording, I would mess up a joke here and there. So that was stressful at the very end.
0: How how many times have you done this so far?
1: Uh, stand up about four or five times.
0: That's good. That's great. I think more than once, like that first one, a little bit like you're, it's, you're not going to be able to grasp on, but then you kind of get your legs under you a little, right?
1: Yeah, and then I want to do better each time, and it's like this, I say, it's my bucket list, and the bucket just keeps saying, more please. So I'm going to go back to it, I do not think it's the last time.
0: Are there any other forensic adventures that are on your bucket list?
1: Any other public speaking adventures? You know, I love speaking in front of larger and larger and larger audiences.
0: What's the largest audience you've ever spoken in front of?
1: Probably about, uh, how many people in the maybe about 300 or 400 people was at a major conference and it was a TED-like thing. And actually, no, I do know an answer to your question, Jeff. I do want to give a TED Talk. And it's hard to get in there. It's hard sometimes because they have a theme and you have to match the theme. But that's sort of the biggest thing on my bucket list is doing a TED Talk somewhere and having a lot of people say it because that's sort of the, the mecca of giving a public speech. Now they retrain you and reprogram you, and I expect to be reprogrammed uh, to some degree, and I find that interesting too, but I want to be up there at that kind of stage, that kind of uh, audience, because at the end of the day, what I want to do is reach as much people as possible. You know, when I competed, my goal was always to be in finals, not necessarily to win finals, but to be in finals, because I wanted to do my stuff in front of the largest audience I could. and ultimately. That was the biggest fulfillment to me, performing in front of the largest and the most audience that I could, not necessarily getting this piece of marble and plastic at the end of the day.
0: You are also in, I can't believe I left this out while I was introducing (laughs) you, the National Forensic Association Hall of Fame. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Is Is that a true
0: physical building? I can go visit that Hall of Fame or is it more of a, a metaphor?
1: It's a page on a website out there in the vast <laughs> unknown. Uh, basically, there are two uh, national organizations it's the American Forensic Association and the National Forensic Association. That's at the college level. There are other smaller organizations, but basically, if you win a national championship or you win what's called the pentathlon, that means you've done at least five events and you score high enough to make a placing in the pentathlon. I took 10th that year. Uh, then you're a yeah, your name on a webpage. On a website, if you Google National Forensic Association, but no building, no green jacket. Uh, it doesn't do much for me, quite honestly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a nice but honor. It,
1: but it just did, so I, I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: and the book, the book is called, what's the name of the book again?
1: The book is called Get to the Point, Sharpen Your Message, and Make Your Words Matter.
0: And you, so you, you give the book, uh, for that's people who can't reach you in New Jersey and New York. This is the best way to learn your teachings?
1: Right. I will get out there. So people can find me at joelschwartzberg.net if they want to take a workshop or take a training. But to tell you the truth, this book is the best uh, capsulization of what I do. I meant it to be like a manual. You won't get a lot of theory here. You won't even get a lot of examples. You'll just get these real nuts and bolts approaches. The things I think are most effective. There are a lot of things out there that are not effective. I can't tell you how many times I Google public speaking tips and I see things that are just a waste of time. Or garbage, or counter. What are
0: some like garbage tips that we already talked about? Picture everyone naked. What are like some other right. common advice you see that you
1: disregard? So the mirror is definitely one. I've seen a lot of people say uh, practice in front of a mirror. I see people say practice with a um, in front of a camera and watch yourself on video. That will help you make you aware. It won't necessarily make you give you the ability to self-correct. Sometimes I see this one: visualize. Visualize yourself having success. Sometimes there are baseball players. You hear them say, like, oh, I'm visualizing having a hit or a home run. And maybe I just have a brain that doesn't work that way. But I cannot, I can psych myself out to some degree. I cannot say, all right, I'm going to visualize success. Now I'm going to step into it and be successful. I think people need more actionable, truly actionable advice uh, to do the right thing. Look, Some people say also, uh, you know, check out, it's so important, get into the room ahead of time, stand up on that stage, or ask your audience what they're interested in. I find those things interesting, maybe helpful, but they didn't make the book. They, they're not in my top ten. Uh, you know, my top ten really starts at point... And then all these other things that really help do that one thing—not to make you more memorable, not to make you seem like the genius public speaker—to do this very blue-collar job of moving your point from here to there, because that's the ball game.
0: And looking back at the conversation that we had this afternoon, have you used any of your forensic jujitsu just in this conversation? Is it something that would help you being interviewed? It seems like it would. You, you're very you. Very on point. Like I'm just trying. I'm thinking back to this conversation. I'm thinking if you've demonstrated some of the concepts that you laid out. And it seems like you have, right?
1: I'm trying to. You know, sometimes there's there's a lot to sort of keep in mind. So I would say uh, to answer your question, the things I was keeping on mind. One was being loud, not mumbling, and probably the biggest one was keeping my sentences tight. I tried not to say, oh, there's this and this and this and this. I try to keep it very simple because I know people need things very simple when they're listening to them in particular to process them. So I was trying to come to end with periods. Probably the third thing that we didn't talk about, there's something called uptalk. That's when you end your sentences with a question mark. I've done an exercise where I just do numbers. I go one, two, three, four, five, and then I say one, two, three, four, five. And the audience always prefers the second one. They say that second group with the periods has more uh, seriousness, has more confidence, competence, authority. So I try to end as many sentences as I, as I can, especially when I'm moving to a point, with a period and not a question mark.
0: Hmm. As an interviewer, I kind of have the opposite
1: challenge, but I see what you're saying. Right, when you're asking a question or when you're from Australia, those things (laughs) will happen. You'll, or you're from California, uh, those you will naturally have a little lilt to the end of your voice. But just keep in mind, if you sound like you're asking a question, your audience will think you're asking a question. So if you're a CEO and you're saying, we're gonna have higher traffic and we're gonna make more money and we're going to open up new offices, I think so. That's why I'm asking you, because I'm not sure. You know, those things happen and an audience will process it that way. One thing President Obama was very good about was ending almost everything he said with a period. I'm gonna send this legislation to Congress. This is the way to go. This is the positioning that's gonna help our middle class. I don't think it was coincidence or just a speaking style that that made him end with period so often. I think he knew, and I think the people that worked with him knew, that when you're ending with a period, you're saying, this I believe.
0: Joel, give me the name of that book one more time because I know there are people listening who could use a copy.
1: The book is Get to the Point. Sharpen Your Message and Make Your Words Matter. And if you want to see excerpts about it or uh, see pieces I've written for various magazines um, that sort of also reinforce those points, they can go to joelschwartzberg.net. That's J-O-E-L-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z-P-E-R-G dot N-E-T.
0: And I will put that in the podcast description. So if you didn't catch that, you can just click on it. Uh, Joel, really interesting stuff. You're right. Good, actionable tips. Um, I have some experience public speaking, but I feel like uh, I've heard things this afternoon that I can remember. The I believe thing, that's a great test. That's really like handy, and you can do it wherever. Um, thank you so much for, for talking about it uh, and making time to uh, talk about public speaking this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Jeff. Nothing makes me feel better than someone who can take something that I convey and use it to elevate themselves. So I really appreciate that. Thanks again, Joel. Thank you, Jeff.